1: How about all that? Okay, there we go. Wow, I'm blending into the uh, the leafscape here with my <laughs> all shirt, I guess.
0: You should have done your face up, Cam. You
1: know, it. Uh, <laughs> at one point, this <laughs> we were on the way to uh, the men's annual gathering in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and we stopped by at Circus World in, let's see, Delavan, Wisconsin, something like that, right near Wisconsin Dells. And uh, I got my face painted as a tiger, because why not? And then I didn't take it off there. I like drove across the face of Wisconsin, and Minnesota and showed up at the AG. And, you know, first people, I don't know, (laughs) when you're big, and you look insane, they don't make fun of you, they kind of like steer away from you. (laughs) So I had to make a point of, being extra smiley and so forth, and saying, "Don't worry, I'm not going to go on a spree. I'm actually just, you know, I went to Circus World. Anyway, it was. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't well, usually get my face painted, and yet that was a good experience. With what if you look like uh, a you know a professional wrestler? What's what's the Mexican luchado? No, you know where they actually l- have the whole costume. Yeah. Exactly, luchador. Yeah. That's it. it it's kind of cool to have just a different. I mean, that's what Halloween." Uh, yeah. Halloween coming up is all about is uh, yeah. assume a different identity, get a different reaction than your usual. You know, I can't make myself smaller, but I can look like an animal. I can look, I can dress up as a woman. I can dress up as a pirate, you know, whatever else it might be that would be different than my usual demeanor, I guess. Right, so, right.
0: yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, the two places you could show up like that without getting too weird a looks would be Wizard World or, and, you know, exactly (laughs) if i showed up at my kids school like that they might ask me to leave you know
1: yeah sir are there troubles at home do you want to tell us about why you have this
0: (laughs) right right
1: well as you know as usual just because we're right on the topic one of the things i thought that would be fun to talk about because we're heading into halloween is i've always loved good costumes and you know so when you see a lot of kids come up and, they, hey, I'm a, I'm a pirate because they have a little scarf and an eye patch. I'm a bum because they put some, you know, smeared their face a little <laughs> bit. When you see someone that did full robot and they've got like a, a, you know, a Borg level of LEDs running up and down. And they're all, I, I just love when people put some work, some love into a costume. And as you know, there's the, the big Mensa um, Chicago area Halloween party, Halloween always has a big costume parade where the costumes are often puns and man i've been going there for 30 years and it's really impressive the the continual creativity and the love that goes into them and just with so i don't know um sometimes it's there's certain ones i've seen serial killer for instance where someone's dressed as a cereal box but with some knife holes in it or something like that or variations on that and i've seen paradise there's some obvious puns if you will. But when someone comes up with after 30, 40, 50 years of Mensa puns, they come up with something new and, and like topical and stuff like that. I I love those. They, they had uh, like one of those, especially for the geek crowd, someone dressed up as a uh, Klingon and had all of his, uh, you know, gear, his tackle box and his fishing pole and stuff like that. And he came come up, go, you know, I am Fisherman's Wharf. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I just, you know, there's a certain crowd that wouldn't care about that, get that, but it had a wonderful explosion of laughter. And so I, anyway, there's, there's some legendary ones. i there. I remember there was one with like someone dressed with, um, all kinds of hair all over him and a hypodermic. And that was a furry with a syringe on top. <laughs> well, the puns get more and more elaborate and great yeah. there were a group of i'm trying to think what it was 27 different people that came out on stage and said i'm Sybil," because of the multiple person you know they just <laughs> i guess like I said i have certain favorites i'm i'm uh colleen and i have dressed up you know before we knew each other we often dressed up but liked each other's costumes and that's one of the ways in which you can get an idea of wow that person's really right. amusing smart you know what i mean they're bold sometimes you wear a costume it's like Wow, that's not flattering. That's, you know, I guess you're going for the laugh. So, uh, you know, when I dress up with just a diaper on, that's a lot of me out there. You know what I
0: mean? <laughs> there are definitely some brave people <laughs> that you wonder <laughs> about sometimes. <laughs> and what you were saying about the costume, do you know that we went to a hobby, was it a hobby lobby, I think, uh okay. down like towards Canton, yeah. and they had a whole cosplayer section. It had certain paints and glue and the rubber and the foam vinyl that you cut in that and i was like that is the coolest thing but now with 3d printers people are right. coming up with stuff that they wouldn't have been able to really do before or would have been very difficult exactly.
1: a weapon that actually has the runes on it that is yeah. authentic to the movie or the story or yeah. you know like that a, a borg half face mask or something like right. that, that isn't just what you know what you're
0: it's definitely easier to do the 3D printer than to go through junkyards and, you know, put them together and paint it. I, I you know, right. but it's also creative. The ones that I, I, I mean, I shake my head. We went to a costume contest with Jason a couple of times and my kids when they were younger. And like these kids, they go to these stores and their parents buy them $150 costumes. You know, they just walked in, tried it on, and then they win the contest. I'm like, that's kind of bullshit. These other kids spent hours on their costume, and it's so cool. But, oh, the same Absolutely. thing everybody else had.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as you know, it's not. of course, it's not only Halloween and Mensa. At, at every comic book convention that I go to, there's a huge cosplaying contingent, and I love that. And often, you know, they'll have the big, um, one of the highlights of either Friday or Saturday night is the costume parade, and they'll have judges. And so much what they're looking for is not, you bought the perfect Iron Man costume, but how did you make that? You yeah. really made it out of those specific, uh, you know, foams and clays and stuff like that, that it looks like authentically metal shiny, but it doesn't weigh like metal. You know, you couldn't wear 150 <laughs> pounds of armor. You know what I mean? Right. And I so the, the judges are usually quite canny in getting uh, the, the awards to, and yeah. at least the, in the questioning of them, the accolades to the people that put love into the costume instead of, yeah, I backed the truck up, bought the costume, and here I am as a dragon. You know, right. that kind of thing. And, so, and that's
0: definitely one of the things. I appreciate about Benson is if you show up at one of those things, Halloween being one of the biggest, probably, and you bought a costume, people are going to look at you like, who cares? And they're not going to, it could be a thousand dollar costume. That's something straight off a movie set and it's authentic and everything, but you bought it and, and no one's going to care, but the people that spent time will get more appreciation. And I love that about Benson's. And I remember Gina, like a lot of people the first time we went to something i think halloween was one of the first okay and she's kind of like okay i don't know these people i don't this isn't my crowd and she's just nervous and what do you guys do is just talk about rocket science and stuff like oh Oh, no not usually (laughs) but and after her first time she's like oh my god you guys that was so much fun loved it and she'll tell people because you probably run into this kind of the bias uh, at times, people will say, oh, Mensa, everyone thinks they're too good for each other, blah, blah, blah. And right. Gina jumps in. She's like, you don't understand. These It was so much fun. And, you know, so,
1: yeah. Exactly. Honestly, out of all the things I've done with Mensa, there must have been one out of 100 where people were really wielding their IQs like a sword. <laughs> Most of the time, it's just, it's wonderful conversation. It ranges all over the place. People are very witty. They're very accepting of you know, all the things, the odd things that people have picked up over the time, or if they don't know about something, they don't have any sense of vulnerability. It's more, well, tell me more about that. Yes. Everyone's curious. Everybody's game for trying a new game or having a different conversation. And especially like, I don't know, Colleen and I pride ourselves on, what can we make with things found around the house? I want to spend like a dollar, you know, on on some makeup that I don't have to happen to have. But otherwise it's, let's take a sweatsuit. And I, at one time I, I put... I took a sweatsuit and I I put um letter K's all over it, you know that I that bought from like you know a a stickum letter that you can use to make a sign for your house or something like that. And so I was six hundred and forty K of Ram, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and I had the Ram helmet on, you know. But like and and sometimes when I go through the costume box, it's like well that was really good costume. And like I said, that cost five bucks. And sometimes you find a way. Well, if I can use that Rams head, something else. And now the cost per costume is two fifty. I got two uses of the ram head, and it, yeah. <laughs> I have sweatsuits that I've turned into a cow pattern or the six forty k of ramen. Like I don't know. I think maybe one of them I've worn out in public because I was just amused as hell. People will say, "Where'd you get those cow
0: pants?" Like, well, actually, I made them. Oh my god! You know, <laughs> I, I entertain myself. <laughs> yes, exactly. I remember clear back like uh, third, fourth grade. Uh, even back then, uh, you know, we always had the thing at school. We had the little parade and costume and all that. And I wanted to be Spider-Man, but even back then, I didn't want to just go buy a Spider-Man costume. So I made my own, uh, we had made little spiders in class for Halloween, you know, whatever. So I took, uh, some, uh, uh, cheesecloth pull over my face and then just a brown paper bag. And I decorated it with spider webs all over. See, that's great. Spider-Man,
1: exactly. You know? <laughs> Especially, you know, I've been to not only, of course, Mensa Halloween parties, but others where then when you like, we aren't the only people that appreciate puns. And so when I showed up as um, one time, I dressed up as a big Viking and I had a Sigma on my chest. And so I was a Thor sum, you know, I stood out like a Thor sum and some people got it. And others, they had to even be explained, you know, they don't know that Sigma is a summation symbol and stuff like that. But then when they got it, it was like, well, that's pretty cool. You know, out of two things, you made a costume instead of having to do full pirate or full robot or full right. Star Wars action figure type stuff, you know? So I've always gone for that, I guess. I, I'm not, I've never been a great artist, but I'm a great caricaturist because I can look at something and say, if I'm going to try to portray Elton John, and there's games that do this, you know, the who, what, where type games where you have to draw this thing, this person in this place doing this thing. Well, I'm not going to try to make a, a, a person that looks like Elton John. I'm going to draw a big stick figure with like glasses and high yeah. heeled shoes. And then boom, Elton John. And so that's kind of what my costumes are is what's the most obvious thing about me? And then, you know, that's got to be part of the name of the costume. And so it, I, I don't know. I, I, I've really had good success with like my, so my, <laughs> this is again, Going on tape, I, I did a costume on where tape glued,
0: really Al. <laughs> I know, see,
1: it's kind of funny. We'll talk about that. You know how to date yourself. You know, I'm, yeah, we're okay. Roll the tape. Right, well, I haven't been using anything. But, you know, anyway. it's, uh, I once uh, glued feathers all over me and had a big owl mask, and I also had one of those blow up Mylar fish that you can buy as a balloon. I had that like duct tape so it was jutting from my groin, and so I was hootie and the Blowfish, <laughs> and for years after that, medicines that was like the example they gave of their favorite costume. So when you're not only funny to yourself, but people actually get memorably funny, I'm just so proud of that. I know it's vulgar, or at least edging on vulgar, uh, but yeah, it just yeah. is. That to, to get people like I, again the big uproarious laugh when I walked up, people hadn't figured it out, and so I kind of stepped to the mic and went like, "Ooh, ooh." Woody and the blowfish and that explosion of laughter was like uh, man i have never felt better about
0: myself right. this is so cool <laughs> and, and that you know that's funny you say that because that's the other thing uh there are a lot of mentions they get that bordering on the sexual thing but it's always right. that subtle bordering it's not explicit you know it's not the the the, the naked half naked nurse uh, you know the naughty nurse and all that it's it's more subtle and explicit and it's, it's just a sign of something uh, that sounds elitist, but something a little higher Think you know, it's not so base level. Uh, exactly. And, and, I think
1: that's true. You know what yeah. I mean? I, I try not to be abrupt, overt, offensive. Like right. I never wear a t-shirt with a swear word on it. I might swear out loud, but there's something different where you don't have the choice of who am I talking to? What's the context? And then my choosing to say fuck is a different thing than everyone that sees me that day from, the little old lady to the child right. to the store clerk is going to say, "Well, this guy has fucking shirt. How you know? It's it, like blunderbuss instead of rifle shot or something like that." I want to choose how I'm going to use my that, word. So,
0: that's why I want a line of t-shirts that has Victorian swear words because we don't use them anymore. Arf and arf and. that's my one of my favorites. Uh, like, like
1: that when yeah. you see the good Shakespearean insults, you know yes. about cod swallow, you know that kind of stuff. It's
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it's like some of my favorite shirts i remember um, there's no place like 127.0.0.1
1: if you got you to be you you get it. it exactly and, or
0: the other one was uh, oh there it looks like there are mm-hmm. only 10 people that understand binary it's 10 one zero.
1: One 10 zero. exactly that <laughs> so. i know i've seen where you're like there's two kinds of people in the world one people who can extrapolate from insufficient data and then nothing else. Yes, <laughs> yes. know, that really is pushing the border of geekery, but that's exactly, you're kind of finding your crowd by who laughs and who goes, what the hell does that mean? Right. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm, right. I'm going to have a good
0: conversation with the first and maybe not so much with the second. And it's so funny <laughs> because if I do have a shirt or something like that, there are certain people, especially family that yeah. I don't associate with very much. I don't get along with too well. And I notice when I wear those types of shirts, they're always like, well, what's that mean? And I'm like, how do I explain this? I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's uh, okay. Hold on. Let's take a half hour so I can like give you the whole basis here. <laughs> uh, you know, so. right.
1: some people find it funny. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> right. Well, it's kind of funny. It's not only like uh, smarties and not smarties, even in the smarties, there's some people that they're smarty is very pedantic yeah. and they're very much like de- definitional and so forth. And so, <laughs> any number of time, but and this is it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, and yet it's only funny. Like when you tell a joke and part of a joke is it's not meant to be literal. It's meant to be a little variation on what was being talked about. There's a different use of the word. So right. it's paraprosodokia and it, you start off in a certain direction and then make a left turn. And when someone insists on saying, well, the reason that joke isn't valid because um, a tick, you know, there's like, uh, what's the difference between, you know, lawyers and, and you know, blood bl- ticks, you know, blood sucking insects without going into the exact joke. And someone then jumps on, well, as you know, uh, ticks aren't insects; they're arachnids, and it's like, wow! You not only managed to not get the joke, but you're trying hard to spoil it for everybody else. Yes. you could just listen to everybody else and pick up on why it's funny instead of insisting that and and that kind of dissection or that kind of I don't know, man. It I I you know, there's certain people that whenever you know that they're literal, and so they're a little bit of playing a game with them. You know what I mean? If you're gonna talk about a certain topic that you know, they know something about, and they're not going to be able to resist then offering what you know, they've talked about before. And so there was one guy that it was about hot and sour soup. And if you said hot and sour soup at any dinner, they launched into their story about hot and sour soup. It was a response button that you could push. And it was like, this is, I kind of thought that people weren't like that, that they go from context or they go from, has everybody else here already heard my story? And therefore I don't need to repeat it. But they're not. There's a certain, I don't know, maybe it's along the spectrum. Maybe it's that that (laughs) they're uh insecure in um creation and one-off type things, but they know if they've told a story that did get a certain amount of laughter that like a a, any stand-up comic, you know, do you have your tight 10 that you know these are your surefire good lines? And if you have to improvise, it automatically kind of throws them into a I don't I'm not as confident, I'm not as witty, but I'm just having to create things instead of I've, I've had a chance to perfect this, to tighten it up. And, and I don't know, I, I, feel, I feel kind of bad for reciters instead of improvers, because most of the world kind of calls on you to be an improver. You know what I mean? Right, right. You're always bumping into situations that you don't know what to do next and keep trying to slot things into a pattern. It, it's a very limiting thing to me. We've talked about this before. When I speak, I don't recite. I tend to have an outline and I speak to it. And I have so much stuff that I want to say that it never comes out the same way twice, but, but it doesn't come across as fragmented. It comes across as, wow, um, that framework is enough structure to hang the entire talk on without having to be, okay, I'm going to start reciting. And then if I get interrupted, oh, I'm jarred and I have to come back to where I was. And, and I don't know, some people recite where it's still very, very smooth. And you, you don't know that it's, until you see them like two nights later and it's exactly the same act, You don't realize that even the pauses, even the little spontaneous quips, were like waiting for that to happen. And I, I don't know, I just, I tend to not have as much respect for recitation as I do for, and I'm not as good at it when I've been in productions, like the Mensa show or something like that. And I really had to recite somebody else's lines. I don't mean to hurt their feelings, but once, once in a while, often I would come up with, you know, there's a better line here. But I don't want to throw off the scene because the scene counts on you get on the train and you ride the train and yeah, you yeah. get off at the end. And if I go onto a sidetrack here, literally and figuratively, um, I've just spoiled this segment of the show. And yet I, my mind has always been blessed to like have those a whole bunch of choices to make. And then when you say one, it's because you thought, what is my context? What could be the wittiest? What have people heard before? And you're, I'm always trying to like, I don't know, make myself laugh. Build on what I've done. You know, yes. I often if, if people that I hang out with, I'm like, okay, I'm sorry if you've heard this before. And if enough people say, Yeah, we have, us be like, then let's move on. You know, I don't I don't need to I, <laughs> say it one more time. <laughs>
0: I definitely get loose from my family because I make myself laugh quite often, but they look at me like, What the hell is that? It's like, okay, well, they, they've kind of gotten used to it now. And yeah. you were talking about the people in Mensa, and I've made the observation that if you take any large gathering of men, and you like squish them all together into one person, you would have somebody with super autism. Because just about <laughs> everybody has some little quirk and eccentricities and tics and this and that that would fall very high on the autism spectrum scale, but they don't have enough of them to be completely autistic. But everybody has like three or four different ones. So right. it's a super interesting time at, sometimes because you get the the personality quirks uh, from just about everybody. It, it's like you know who uh, is going to, like, want to oh. discuss something very strictly. and You know somebody who's joking on everything, and you know somebody who's into the games, you know? And that's right. the thing that a lot of people don't understand is Mensa isn't because we can memorize history and we have all the dates. There are people like that. I'm not one of them. Uh, I know general, yeah. you know. but Nor is just
1: knowing the dates really and interesting it's like anyway what you make of it yeah
0: yeah so you know they 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 don't get that the the iq part of it there's different layers and level of it that different people have different things they're smart in Uh, just like you know i could be a fast runner but maybe not a strong thrower of a football
1: that kind of thing i'll tell you i I, this is a story that i told early on in my mensa career but i've stopped telling it as much because because i've said it too many times I, my early Mensa meetings were very exploratory. You know, even though I knew I was a smarty from early on, I didn't discover Mensa until like the mid seventies, and I didn't really. I dipped a toe in with like when I I went downtown because there was a specific monthly meeting on chess, and I was really into chess and and into crypto zoology, which you know your uh, column would be very happy yeah, to hear yeah. that. Yep, I was into it early on too. <laughs> but and, crypto
0: means more than just Bigfoot. Uh, that's, that's animals in areas. areas. Yeah, you're
1: exactly yeah. right. So having said that. I remember going to a Mensa meeting and it it was like, I also had no idea what it was going to be like, you know, is it going to be okay, everybody share your big IQs and let's all you know compare our, uh, it was instead wide ranging conversation, but I also had, like, there was a guy that was really into Sherlock Holmes. He was one of the Baker Street Irregulars that ran the local chapter in Chicago. And no matter what you were talking about, that's what he talked about. He talked about something on TV and be like, yes, that also occurred in the sign of the four. And that level of like a little bit of hijacking conversation, a little bit of of, of obsession was a little bit weird. And so that's, that's, I kind of, I had that taste of, there is that segment of Mensa that they really are too into Legos, too into Sherlock Holmes, whatever else it might be. And that I I love Sherlock Holmes enough that I was happy to have a conversation with them. But after a while, you notice that some other people are checking out of the conversation because they aren't as into the Sherlock Holmes canon as that. And that he can't stop himself. And right. so then the next time that I'm with him, maybe I'll get a little dose of Sherlock Holmes, but he's not the guy who I'm going to spend the entire gathering with. Right. I want more variety than that. And so that's just something that you learn that the people that are really into NASA, the people that are really into cooking, it's okay. I, my polymathic interests are enough that I can have conversations with each of those people. And I know this is an odd thing to say. I probably have lots of people that. That think I'm a big friend of theirs because I'm kind of one of the only people that will talk to them. They're so obsessed in some ways, you know. And I don't know that that's only autism. Some people are just really they're they're fanatic. They're siloed in what they care about. And and I like let's talk about um, old Woody Allen movies if you'd like. But then after you've had that conversation, I'm going on a little bit too long. There are those people, and not only in Mensa but in the world when you sit down with somebody and all they want to do is talk like bar trivia about sports and like wow i'm kind of cool that i actually know a couple of these but that's not enough it's not enough for like all of what you're out there to be to be doing in the world you know what i mean so
0: and that's also makes the mental gathering so interesting because you will have those people totally into sherlock Holmes but you'll have the other people totally into cryptozoology and other people who who, uh, you know, read three books a day and other people that are making movies. That's the great thing. There's so many interests. And I think the the thing that's threatening to some people is that because I, I I look at other people and what's what, you know, what's their interest? Well, I, I go to work, I come home, eat dinner, watch TV till I fall asleep. And then I watch the game on the weekend. That's their whole life. And man, most of us would like kill ourselves like oh my god i'm so done with this life you know
1: yeah well that that early discovery about mensa was that especially you know i really am i am so curious about everything that going to a place where you did have i don't care about having a dozen different obsessive people if i get a wonderful conversation with each of them i'm still wow i tell me more about banff canada tell me more about submarines it just yeah. i love that kind of thing and, it, and in fact the um some part of one of my superpowers is um in a in a crowded place, instead of my having to tune in on a specific conversation, I can kind of go into full receiver mode and kind of catch all of what's being said, and I can jump in and out of various different conversations or pull in a thread from what somebody just said to kind of get them to come into the group because I try to be very welcoming. It isn't only a series of one on ones. it is cool to have everybody at the table talking about it and and there's a uh, flow to it, you know, of, of how things go in and out of what you're talking about. The people that insist on bringing the conversation back to only one topic can be disruptive to that. But otherwise, it's kind of cool. I was trying to be an orchestrator of everybody has something to offer. You know, tell us more about you have an Abyssinian cat. That's not a common cat breed. And they would sometimes there'd be a little start where they go, wow, I didn't realize that he was listening. And w- one Benson actually caught that and kind of called me on it. Helen Copper where she could tell that I was really picking up on all these little pieces. And I kind of gave her that shy smile of, this is kind of funny. What she said was that I was the least autistic person that she knew. (laughs) And so that's funny because you and I have talked about where we might be on the spectrum, but actually, I guess I have that ability to go wide or narrow focus instead of only being the one or the other. And when she saw me doing that, she was like, really, I guess, impressed, or at least amused by, how does somebody keep all that in their head going on and weave it, weave it in real time into a cool conversation? I, I don't know, I, I've kind of always had that. You know, I, I don't, I, I often have music playing while I'm doing other things. I have TV on in the background. I, I, in some ways, having something else going on actually helps me to concentrate better on the thing I'm working on, because in the act of tuning this out, it gives you focus on another thing and and bear with me, we had a whole list as usual of things we were going to talk about, but one of the things that I just did, said this last week online was Mihai sent Mehai just passed away. He's the author of Flow: mm-hmm. The Psychology of Optimal Experience, and I, I'm glad that I thinking about it now because I would have I would have been sad if I had missed it. That book shaped me incredibly when I read it. Yeah, and the way I put a little tribute online was, besides my parents, I can't think of many things that have had more of an influence on me. He talks about how that flow state of being your um, master of all the things you're thinking of and working on, you can keep more in short-term memory. So you're making connections you might not ordinarily. You're so absorbed in this cool, interesting thing you're working on that time seems to fade away. And you kind of come to two hours later without realizing two hours have passed. I'm really good at that. One of the ways in which I've been hyper-productive at coding or writing or or playing music, making music, whatever else it might be, is if I can create that atmosphere of avoiding interruptions, not having it be that there's um, other things on my mind, that you're the hyperproductivity that you experience when you're really good at this thing and you go into a database and you make it perfect in terms of how it works, how it hangs together, how it talks to the outside world it's kind of hard to explain that to other people that like you made connections that aren't obvious, but they're true, they're real, they bear out to be true. A little bit we've talked about with debugging, you know what I mean? It isn't only that you brute force it, you just have this kind of gestalt understanding of what might it be. And your first, second, third guess are very often right. So that after a while people kind of, wow, I don't know how you do it, but you do it. It's true that you do this well. And so hats off to Mihai at Mihai. And every, all listeners, if you want to get a copy of this book, Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience, it's a really good um, presentation of what that is, how it works, how to summon it more into your life. It does have a dark side because sometimes when you over-focus, you really like, oh, I shouldn't have played that game. And I played it for three hours. And now I still got stuff I should have gotten done. So you kind of like can't let it master you. But it has been so much the source of, Um, great accomplishments in my life. When I was working on the Moscow Commodities Exchange, when I was doing Gambit and I created my atmosphere of here I am and I'm working at night so there's no interruptions in that way and I got my music on and and most most of the people at my shared office suites were gone and so every night I was like falling into this cool thing of I'm learning a ton, I'm experimenting a lot, I'm getting caught and just no wonder I was able to put together something really cool, maybe even amazing in about a year that is other people's like lifetime work and and it was very satisfying not only in the result of it but in the doing of it to go into that cool state and and to just know that wow this is really working i can't believe it's really you know anyway anyway i hope that you have that too you have some of the same experiences i think probably when you play music you know you've talked about it isn't only about like what you've memorized it's being in the groove it's listening to others there's a certain amount of It's not only being by yourself, that when you're in a jazz trio and there's almost telepathic communication between people that you really do exactly the right shifts and chord changes and and key changes at the right time, there's a very satisfying thing to, I kind of took myself out of it. My subconscious, my other mind is doing this instead of my conscious, but I'm creating something beautiful. Improv is like that. Something beautiful right away. Where did that come from? I don't know, but I seem to be able to do it on a regular basis. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah. we,
0: we, we talk about that a lot with writing, getting into that flow state and how you yeah. can get so much more done and it's so much better work. Uh, but it's something you actually have to sometimes work to get to. Like music, like you said, it's a very good example. I can't get into that state. I can't uh, just start letting it flow and express until I've got the basics mastered, until I know the fingerings, I know the chords, the I know the whole fretboard that I can play with my eyes shut because I don't need to stare at it. Exactly. You know, you it's beyond fundamentals.
1: Yes, yeah. absolutely. You know, yeah. it's mastery and, and the effortlessness of mastery when you've already got the 10,000 hours it took to get right. there. Yes,
0: yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, what I go mean? Go with that. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, same thing with martial arts. Um, I, yes. I always, you know, kids who were struggling to get some of the upper uh, form and do those properly and they would just weren't the right, You know, it's a little structured in exactly where, how you're moving at times. And they Mm -hmm. would be very sloppy. And I would be like, okay, well, let's go back and let's work on kicks and punches. Well, I know how to do those. Well, you need to do those when you're, don't think about it. And you can always see, like, you learn how to fall because we do, we do various self-defense things and we throw people and we take it easy, but you have to know how to fall so you don't get hurt.
1: That's right. (laughs) That's right
0: but you have to do those falls so many times that you do it without even thinking and ask my wife. I still do. Uh, I've, I've fallen in the dark, just walked over a little three foot cliff almost. And, and she's like, Oh my God, he's dead. And I stood up, brushed myself off. She's like, Oh my God. Now, because instead of putting my hands down and falling on my face, I twisted and, you know, fell correctly. So I didn't even get hurt and she'll grab my arm at times. And I don't even think about it. I just flip it around. And she's like, stop that. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's
1: in your muscle memory yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. If it's you touch a hot response. stove,
0: you pull your yeah. hand away. You don't think about it. <laughs> Same with this. I just do it. But That's yes, right. the flow state with anything creative. Uh, and there's a book out called uh, Big Magic that touches on that a little bit and how okay. you your creativeness uh, in that. But, uh, well, okay. So I was going to real quick make a comment. Uh, uh, you're high on the spectrum for camouflaging. you hide all your autistic stuff <laughs> that's your high spectrum so but it, it
1: can be that that those things that are like that i've actually learned to like put humor to it and then it's right. more acceptable you know if i, I was agree. only the guy that knows things he shouldn't know and i was <laughs> wielding it as a weapon it wouldn't be as funny as in well i made a pun out of it and maybe the pun source is obscure I so agree. that really might be you know you you learn to
0: there are times I will say something, and the people I'm with look at me like, what "The hell are you saying?" But it's it's a little like dry British humor, a little mortuary dark humor, okay. you know. And if I said it to you, you'd probably laugh and get it. If I said it at a men's gathering, most of them would laugh and get it. But sometimes I say it to other people, and they don't always get it. And I have to watch myself because then I get looked at like. You're weird.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Colleen and I love going to stand-up, as you know. And one of the interesting things that happens at stand-up is that there are some comedians that are um they're trying out new material or they know that the material isn't for everyone. And when we're sometimes the first people to laugh or the only people to laugh, sometimes they really love, okay, someone really got that joke. Who knew that a a, a joke about Molière would go over in Cleveland, Ohio? But you know what I mean? If they make a good enough whatever. And it doesn't have to be good enough. It just has to be not to everyone's taste that they're not expecting to have something be double and triple layered and stuff like that. Um, but then they start to pay attention to you a little bit more. You know, we usually sit like first, second, third row. We, right. we, tend to, we don't mind being near the stage because we are good laughers and we give them good feedback so that they'll have more fun with their own set. And then you know, it, it's kind of funny. They, they don't usually, we're not the young couple out on a date so we're not perfect grist for the mill, but when they talk to us and we don't try to be funnier than them, that we just try to give them material to work with. We've had a number of people that really seem to be, they don't mind us being there. They don't think that we're the plant that's trying to wreck their act. You know what I mean? Or, or so drunk that they're insisting on, Look, give me the mic, I'll do the show. You know, come.
0: So. <laughs> right. yeah, I can do that, that's easy. Exactly. Um, that's a whole conversation. <laughs> so you mentioned music. Let me tell you about my, my weekend. Okay, uh, very good. I went to New Orleans. See, my Vampires of New Orleans t-shirt.
1: Vampires in New Orleans. I knew this was coming. So this was the big world-building workshop, the big shared. Uh, yes. Okay.
0: Uh, fantastic weekend. Uh, first of all, uh, our group, uh, what, what it is, Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon um, create these world-building events with a theme. I went to the one in Salem for Witches. And this one was Vampires in New Orleans. And you take a couple extra days. You explore the city. You gather and soak up the atmosphere.
1: You're uh, not going there just to be in a hotel. You're correct. there because they put it in Salem for a reason. In knowledge for a reason. Yeah.
0: So the, the highlights of the whole thing. And I have a really cool story. So I'll make sure and share that when the anthology comes out. But the highlights were the very first day kicked off. Uh, it was a Zoom call. But Dacre Stoker got on and talked to all of us about the research. Stoker, you
1: mean like Bram Stoker related? Grand nephew. How cool is this? Yes. Wow. He,
0: he um, so Dacre uh, has researched his, it's his great grand uncle, uh, Bram, uh, into his writing and that, and he does talks and he's fantastic uh, at talking. He actually got a first edition that his uncle had and his uncle is signed. And he got those wow. replicated. Uh, so I'm trying to get one. I didn't know they existed until recently. But anyway, okay. so <laughs> he actually has worked with J.D. Barker, who I've mentioned, and right. they wrote uh, this, the prequel to Dracula uh, using notes that Bram had uh, okay. on creating this. They, they figured out where the castle would be on a map. And uh, they used some of the because like in the preface to the Swedish edition of Dracula, it was longer than English and he talks about jack the ripper so they include jack the ripper in their prequel story
1: a little bit um, of wolf newton type things where you know literary yes. giant figures are actually wow did they know each other is there a shared world between yes. them very interesting okay and he
0: i mean he didn't just like throw something together they literally went to libraries in london in special archives that they had to get permission to get to Right, put read, on the white gloves with yes. no human oil and all that kind of and, stuff. And they exactly. had the actual notes and stuff. And in the margin, Brahm made notes of research books. They found research books at the library with his writing in them that he made notes on. Oh, cool. uh, so, anyway, he talked to us, and that was pretty spectacular. Uh, Thursday night, we went to a private vampire speakeasy. You had to hear about it. had to find the right person to get the password to get in.
1: Wow. uh, Okay.
0: That was kind of fun and special. Uh, Really good drinks. Uh, Some of the best drinks of the whole week.
1: Vampire themed, in other words, you know, a plasma cocktail or whatever else it might be. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They had that all over the place. Bloody Mary, of
1: course. Okay.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, We took a a couple tours. uh, You couldn't get into the cemeteries. Because of COVID, which made no sense. You can't go into a cemetery because they're worried about COVID, but they had a parade that we were packed in like See, Yeah. Whatever. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the parade was crazy. We really didn't stay for it. Um, but it was the first parade in 18 18- months. So, wow. And you
1: were there for that. I mean, that. Yeah. I, I don't know. As you know, I'd be a little worried because you don't know everybody there is going to be safe and you're right. right amongst them and stuff like that. But as long as you were, Vaxed and boosted yes. and all that kind of stuff, or mask or whatever you were doing. And,
0: and most of the good. places you had to show your card that you got vaccinated to come the into the place. So uh, there was that, um, but just the atmosphere, the the buildings and the architecture and all the bums, you know, and everything. But talking about music, there were some really good street musicians and really mm-hmm. good. So if you ever go down, you know, this is the tip. Uh, there, there's people all over asking. Uh, constant. Right. There's people performing on the street. I said, okay, you know what? That person is working hard. They're giving me a great song, whether it's guitar or singing. I gave them some bucks. You're just coming up saying, hey, I need some money. Give me some money. No, I'm, I'm not doing, I'm not giving all that. You know, right. my personal choice.
1: Honestly, once again, we're quite parallel. You know, I have been to New Orleans a couple times and had noticed that same thing and and not only in New but everywhere, I, I tend to still want people don't have to abase themselves, but I really want it to be that they're if they're a busker and they're doing something to, to earn money, I want to encourage that activity, not yes. just be I'm down on my luck and I'm not even trying to get any better. You know right. what I mean? So I, I tend to be much more um generous and um yes exactly yeah, yeah, what you're yeah. saying so okay
0: so i got to visit uh, uh william faulkner's house he lived in new orleans for a while uh, i bought okay. some faulkner books which i've not owned any faulkner before um i visited ann rice's house so it was an author trip in that regard
1: exactly and she bases a, a number of her books on like recognizable scenes all throughout yes. new Orleans. you know the yes. vampire books the, anyway okay
0: and the other fun thing for me was i got to visit some of the places They use for settings in NCIS New Orleans with uh, Scott Bakula. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched that show. They have this. I have not. Okay, they have this weird um, entrance to their uh, headquarters. And I went to the spot and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that's it!" I took a picture of it. Right, very
1: recognizable. Then, okay, yeah. yeah. And
0: I looked through the grate. It it was just somebody's parking for the apartment. So they always filmed (laughs) it, so you didn't see that. So it's interesting because you think you know oh i go through here and there's the office in no it's not at all it's not connected it's only the fronting exactly <laughs> yeah. so uh, that was fun and uh, you know there was other sites i got pictures where they filmed some interview with the vampire they did the third season of american horror story in one of the houses uh, exactly the, okay because uh, was the Mike Tyson one. was like, filming something there when we yeah. were down there any um, Trent
1: Reznor's studio I know that when he was still do, doing uh uh like a couple albums I think he did based out of a studio in New Orleans yeah and stuff he like had that. a
0: house down there they pointed exactly. I didn't see okay. that one but they told about it and they said okay. does anyone know who Trent Reznor is I says, yeah he's from Cleveland <laughs> you know exactly
1: (laughs) was at the foundry and exactly you kind of broke out of here exactly yeah so
0: So (laughs) it was a good weekend uh i'm excited uh we've got a lot of good stories everybody is excited to tell so uh good vampire stuff and i picked up way too many books uh i said well i need to do some good research because i want to do vampires and voodoo in my story so I really do need these 17 books because <laughs> you can't get sufficient research unless you have 17 books.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I I'm, I'm, hope you don't mind. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm very curious. Like when you guys are deciding what stories are going to be told, is there like negotiation? You know, I guess multiple people want to say, well, I want to tell the origin story of this character. Oh, but I already have an idea for that. And then they kind of decide who gets what or how they're going to interlock or do you know what i mean it's not that
0: that, that's really interesting because we want to put all the books or all the stories in the book in a shared world but we don't want to force everybody to use the same characters the same time setting so it's a balance like for the witches we said we want to set it in salem at any time period and we were trying to figure out how to connect it because the the Different people had different aspects of witches they wanted to use. And we didn't want to limit people. We wanted them to tell their story. But, you know, it was basically you need witches. That's the whole idea, you know. So we came up with a few conventions. Like every story has to involve a spiral. That there was a spiral connecting all the different stories in the world. Um, So it was very loose and open. This one wasn't quite as much, but it didn't feel uncomfortable what we did was we said okay we want to set it in the french quarter everybody is in the french quarter with vampires, and then we define what a vampire is uh so we would all have similar power you know if, if everybody agreed yes you can't see reflection that was in our world part of it. so okay. uh i mean there are people setting it contemporary that's in the 2000s mine is like 1700." Uh, is what mine's thinking and
1: with vampires you can do that because they are indeed immortal you know practically and so you're there really should be that there's a a procession through time or that there's things that happened in the past that might still impact now and generationality and stuff like that right okay
0: right so it'll be interesting uh i mean it is different because we're not sitting down all the time like like tv you know uh, people writing for a tv show they have a bible they all follow i might be writing this episode and you're on that one but we're, we have the same characters, the same quirks.
1: Right. The There's a showrunner that's making sure there is continuity and correctness, yes. if you will. Okay. Yeah.
0: This <laughs> is a little bit looser, uh, which lets everybody have their own style, their own, because I like to write middle grade, but other people like to write thrillers. Other people like to write contemporary. this, you know, so. Exactly. Urban all fantasy
1: and, and on historic fiction and whatever else it might be. Yeah. Right. Okay.
0: So, yeah, it'll be good. So I've got both of those books should be coming out
1: very cool anybody there that you felt particularly simpatico with you know like sometimes it's not only that wow a dozen of us got together i've often had it on projects that's like wow me and this person go very easily into a mind meld and so if i have a tighter project that's who i would work with first because we'll be hyper productive together or at least have a ton of fun doing it together you know what (laughs) i mean (laughs) yeah yeah,
0: actually um several of the people here were also at the witches uh, but some of the people at the witches one were not here but some of those same people, I meet with a mastermind group on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And all of us, regardless of the mastermind or these, we're all in a Slack group together. We do a lot of discussion. So th- there's various levels of knowing people. Like this one guy over in California, uh, we get along great because we're very similar. We're both nerds. We like DD science fiction, Star Wars. You yeah. know, so when we're together, it's like, hey, Lon, how you doing? We talk like, you know, we're good old friends and I haven't seen him for two years. Exactly. Um, and there's other people that we talk a lot of author stuff, uh, but I haven't really worked with a whole lot. You know, it's just one of those things, being in the room, talking author stuff all day. It creates that bond between people.
1: Absolutely. Shared experiences and that you, know, you all have a vested interest. You know, we want nice. these, the, the anthology to do well. And so you, you want it to be, everybody raise your game. You know what I mean? When you, when you join a new band, you want to be like, well, I don't want to be the show off, but I also don't want to be the laggard. How do we all create something that's greater than the sum of the parts? You know what I mean? Right. This, that very cool. Okay.
0: So it, I've yeah, never
1: it, done it, anything it, 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 like that. I'm fascinated. You know what I mean? Because I've done improv. I've done things that were very much a shared activity and, um, I always, I don't know, I am nowhere near a published author as you are. I have magazine articles. I've done essays. There's nowhere near a long form type thing. So I I really am respectful of that. But but then also to see the confidence that comes from, it's not only me writing by myself, you're kind of like opening the kimono to who else you're going to work with and what your writing style is. And the the ideas, like we talked a little bit about this, it isn't that you have a a shortage of ideas and the ones you have you got to hold on to diamonds it's more like well i have so many ideas going through my head like a meteor shower that i kind of got to pick the ones that are the best out right. and sometimes it's in the act of talking to others that you'll see which are the ones that really immediately got somebody else's attention and which are the ones were like oh huh, that didn't that didn't land that didn't resonate oh, so yeah. maybe I, I know that one of the conventions for writing is knife the baby you know the thing that you think is just so precious and so perfect maybe that's where you're blindest about your own self-review and that you really might need to have feedback from other people. Yeah, so.
0: definitely. Uh, better authors figure that out. Ask now,
1: Congrats, was, that's too cool. Okay. There, there
0: was a uh, vampire boutique down there um, okay. and the lady that runs it was going to talk to us, but she just had knee surgery and she just wasn't up. But okay. a lot of good stuff in the boutique. I emailed her and explained who I was so as an Easter egg in my, so my story is going to involve Marie Laveau's zombie army that's controlling the French Quarter. And okay. I'm going to use the character uh, of this lady that runs the boutique. She let She's going to let me use her name. She wants to take over the French Quarter. So she makes a Faustian deal to raise vampires to fight the zombie army. Uh, that's basically what my story is going to
1: very cool. Yeah, thank you for the prelude. That, that's very cool. All right.
0: <laughs> <Yay>.
1: <laughs> you All know, right. A, a quick, a quick compression of knowledge. I was down there for a tech conference and, and I remember I might've gotten a view like, of course, everybody goes out. You almost like become part of the nightlife because you go yeah. out when things are hopping. Well, I went out sometimes during the day to wander the city before the tech conference kicked off and I stayed right in the French quarter. And you know what? Seeing the French quarter in broad daylight, not really as uh, intoxicating as when it's, at night and beads being thrown out for various different and so i was like wow this is kind of like maybe a lady of the evening the morning after a little aged a little not quite as impressive as when all the glamour is on from you know the excitement and the alcohol in the night and and it had a certain like they're cleaning up from the previous night's festivities there's a certain amount of trash and a certain amount of urine scent and whatever else it might be it's like Wow, I, I kind of wish I hadn't stayed here because now I'm getting the behind-the-scenes right. view that this isn't magical. It's it's, it's actually kind of hundry depending <laughs> on what when you when you show up. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So we we did anyway. hear
0: a lot of good bands. We went to a couple bars just to hear some bands. Um, we... There's a bar down there that is in the oldest building being used as a bar in the country from like 1700, wow. and so that was cool. Uh, and I did go to a bookstore, and I found one of Bill's books that I didn't have. So I held it up and sent a picture to him and Bria. I said, I went to New Orleans. All I got was this book.
1: Was this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, when, he, when he's got, like, dozens of books, it's kind of fun to find one that maybe yeah. is even out of print. But there it is still in this cool bookstore, so right. good for them. Yeah. 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 So
0: I, I've got most of his stuff by now, so it's harder to find one
1: good for you for going to music when you're in a town that like is made out of music you gotta go to yeah. the bars in austin you gotta go to the bars in new orleans because that's that's such a great music town so good yeah. for you man yeah. okay.
0: music is wonderful that's one of the things i wanted to go hear some good jazz yes. uh and you know and it's actually hard on bourbon street you have to go to uh Frenchman street, uh for the jazz and blues and all that stuff bourbon okay. street th- th- this is how it was explained to me that after Katrina in 2008, a lot of the old-time places that were there left. The people were done, and they didn't come back. So right. what came got. in, it was very modern. And so there's a lot of rock bands, cover bands, and it's not the the traditional feel and style. Interesting.
1: I was actually, you know, I was going to ask about that, you know, sometimes cities go through dramatic changes like that, where there's a big fire, and they kind of start over like they did in Chicago, there's a big flood. And like you said, people leave or things that, that were are washed away or made at least unusable. And so sometimes seeing those, the levels of Troy that got built up over the years, it's very interesting, but can also be kind of heartbreaking with like, man, all my life, I wanted to go to you know, I don't know uh this particular on on Bleeker Street in Memphis. And then just before I got there, they had a fire and burnt out. And it's like now all I have is the the Rolling Stone references. I never got a chance to go to it, and that's that's tough. So okay. I did see
0: House of Blues. I did see the film down there, so that was cool. Okay. Um, I will say advice.
1: Beale Street, by the way, Beale in Beale Memphis, Street. not yeah. bleaker Bleakers, New York. Okay. Anyway, uh,
0: say um, <laughs> the, my advice is when you get there, there's a sightseeing bus. Four, the double decker bus called yeah. Hop On, Hop Off, Sightseeing Tours, or something like that. Cool. Just buy tickets, uh, make it for two days or more if you can. Just because from our hotel, we could jump on a bus within a block, and it took us down to the French Quarter with Cafe Dumont, which is okay. big for the coffee and the beignets. And we didn't have to walk. It was only like 0.8 miles. But if you're walking 0.8 miles there and back, and you do that two or three times, you're like, okay, I'm done. With this. <laughs> you know? Okay. depending
1: on temperature depending on how much time you have to put into it you know what i mean just that i I, colleen and i have done things like that in multiple cities or austin toronto and so forth we tend to walk everywhere we go but after a while you're like well if we're going to get six things done today that we want right i don't want to pair it back to four let's find the easy way to get around and that'll that'll save us some time okay and
0: i i looked at my fitbit i put in 37 uh, miles. fantastic That's so.
1: off man that's great okay. it's like hiking
0: <laughs> all i needed yeah. was a backpack <laughs> <laughs> all right so we talked halloween we talked new orleans what else is on our list oh um what'd you say
1: actually so here it's kind of funny we really will do not just uh abrupt non sequiturs, <laughs> but segues <gasps> one of the things that like the shared world thing yes a, a, a variation on that is where sometimes things have gone on for a while and the original the creator passes but there really are a desire to keep the series going. There's there's rational inheritors to that. So Dune is on TV right now. And Frank Herbert wrote the initial Dune books. But there's actually, besides the, let's say, half a dozen in the initial Dune books, there's another half dozen that were written by his son. And I think Brandon Sanderson. No, no, they, uh,
0: Michael J. or Kevin J. Anderson.
1: At Kevin J. Anderson. Thank you. Exactly. Um, yes, I should uh, yes. Yes. Um, they fill in, like, more about the Bene Gesserit, more about the... You know, how, how uh, spice and space holding was first discovered and uh, Duncan Idaho. And they, the fact that, that I really like the fact that they were able to capture kind of the, not only the, the universe of it, the characters of it, but that the writing style was similar enough that it wasn't jarringly well before I was doing jazz and now I'm doing rock and roll, you know, that kind of thing. And there's been a number of things where sometimes they try to continue it and maybe it is jarringly different. But for instance, I I love the uh, Robert B. Parker wrote a, a number of series. Spencer is his most well known mm-hmm. creation. You know the the um, uh, tough guy Private Eye, probably forty in the series at least at three dozen something like that. And he passed away ten years ago. But the books about Spencer and about Jesse Stone up in Paradise and about Sonny Randall have continued to come out. And the foundation that that is you know the Robert B.'s Robert B. Parker, I don't know trust continues to find authors that seem to have a good feel for how they were written a good feel for the characters and that there's been very few books that were like oh okay the series is dying now because they you know james bond has been on and off with people that followed ian fleming so i, I could we, we can kind of start naming them sometimes it seems like it's a certain amount of well there's money to be made and sometimes it's well they made a movie that wasn't based on the books but someone's going to do a, a a serialization an adaptation of that anyway Maybe they could write original James Bond books. And so I have my favorites for what seemed to really be like in the spirit of Phil Jose Farmer or Ian Fleming or whatever else it might be. Um, And that's kind of a shared world. You know what I mean? Where like, does the guy sound like Parker would have written Spencer? Yeah. It's got that same terseness, kind of a Hemingway-esque, you know, it's all dialogue. It's all very, there's very little uh, exposition. It's all action and movement and, key things happening as opposed to the loving descriptions of breakfasts and whatever else it might be you know and so i'm impressed with the people that can do that that they know that so well that they can fake being another person you know what i mean so having said that what's that like for the person that's the author and maybe you have bumped into this and some of you have interviewed various different undiscovered authors but i i always thought boy i would Really like if I was going to have a series to have it be just mine. Part of what comes on in comic books is when you wrote a really good Daredevil series, but you didn't create it. You know what I mean? Frank Miller, for all that you wrote, a fantastic run on Daredevil, you didn't originate that character. And what is it like to come into something where it's not only yours that you kind of stepped in, wrote some great Doom Patrols, and then stepped back out? There's a different mindset to that, I guess. You know, how much of a stamp can you put on yourself? Uh,
0: I know. There are a couple people, authors I know that work in or created shared. Um, okay. I haven't done anything other than this vampire and witches stuff, which is a very loose definition of a shared world. We're not trying to create actual history that everyone stays within canon. You know, there there's yeah. some differences. Um the the one that I know Kindle used to have a shared worlds thing where you could Write your books and put it in this Kindle worlds, and then other authors could write in that world, and, and it would put it all together. Right. So,
1: if your world was convincing enough, you would actually attract people to also contribute right, to it. You know right. that, that's interesting. And,
0: and there's an author, uh, Michael anderlet who does that a lot. I mean, he's very much like James Patterson, where just about every book he comes out with is with a co-author. So he has this world, um, Lutheran, uh world, I believe. Okay. uh that essentially, he's written some books in, but then there's like three times as many authors who have written in that world with him. interesting.. Yeah. So Michael Angel is one to look up. He liked like that thing tons of I, books
1: I will. In fact, you know, the whole world of fan fiction, we haven't really talked about this before. Yeah. You know besides the real world of books getting published by publishers and making it into bookstores, there's been fan fiction for a long time. And a lot of self-publishing on the net started because someone had written a really good Star Trek book, but the Star Trek publishers wouldn't do it. And they were like, you know, uh, um, there, there of course, were always matters of copyright. And like, you can't just start talking about Kirk and Spock and especially fanfic being a certain amount of, oh, there's stuff going on there that would never have been approved on TV, you know, alien romance and whatever else it might be. but. There, I, I like the fact that people love those things well enough that they're going to write more Firefly episodes. Oh, yeah. They want that world to continue. And so they do it. And sometimes the, the originals, the, the owners of such copyrights really clamp down and don't want that. And in other cases, they have an awareness of the network effect that said, if we want this to continue to be in the public consciousness and people are kind of doing this for free. Wow. W- why not? You know, whatever the entanglements of you might loosen your copyright a little bit, but you've got twice as much material for people to know and, that exists in the Serenity and Firefly universe. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting trade off.
0: And I, you think, know? I, I think sometimes the big corporates don't get the world in that way, uh, the way the world is now and the way kids and younger people think about it. Um, a big example is Star Trek. Because there has been fan fiction on the net since the net was created with Star
1: Trek. Absolutely, you know, and, and you know, back only- when all you could download was text, that's right. what there was. <laughs> yeah,
0: and, and not only that, you know, we have the uh, Starfleet battle, that was totally based on Star Trek. You know, that yes. uses the same Gazinti and the Klingons and everything else that they throw. That's in right. There. Um, and it wasn't. It was kind of overlooked for a long time, uh, even when they were doing Next Generation and you know, all of those but then when the new movies were coming out they clamped down on it and the lawyers sent out cease and desist and they closed down all these websites and that's what
1: it can be once there's real money involved now it is time to like tighten things up and also sometimes it's just a matter of quality i've read a lot of fanfic that was like it is no wonder that this didn't get published you know what i mean you need an editor you need to have a better grasp of the characters whatever it was that that it wasn't of sufficient professional quality. It was loving, but it sure wasn't great. <laughs>
0: right. And I, but I think so, the the reason they clamp down sometimes is erroneous. <laughs> that they say, well, we don't want people to get confused as to what the official stuff is. Like, I don't think people get confused. And I think it's <laughs> it's almost like kicking uh the fans in the teeth. We know you love it, but we want you to pay us for it. With you know, right. with some of this stuff If you let the people go, let them write those stories. And in fact, George Lucas encouraged that for years uh, with the videos. I don't know if you ever saw, they had a yearly fan movie awards where-
1: uh, I have seen this. And and he was one of the guys, thank you for mentioning him, because I knew that there were were some that still had enough of the rebel spirit, enough of the, this universe is big enough. I've, I've already made a skillion dollars. I don't need to make the next skillion. It's okay to like loosen the reins a little bit.
0: But, but, uh, but him, I think him what,
1: saying that and the money lawyer etc people saying that not automatically matching <laughs> I,
0: I think what he realized that like uh, paramount didn't is the, the people writing the fan fiction and loving it aren't hurting your brand it's not making people go oh i'm not gonna watch the new star trek movie because man i have fan fiction it's that's right keeping it alive these people love it and they want to keep it alive and that's you know the same as like going to concerts you remember back in the day you tried to smuggle a recorder in how you get kicked out and banned and your ticket ripped up and all sorts of stuff and now everybody has a cell phone and they're finding that the more people record the more they want to hear the music and buy the shirts and this that and the other thing that's exactly it took everybody
1: a while to get to that you know what i mean and there's been it hasn't been smooth there's been all kinds of you know um, fits and starts where um that's not that's that's piracy and if you really are not only recording it, but selling it as if you're the authorized, well,
0: uh, you know, misrepresenting is
1: a different thing. Yeah. And that's always what I thought the cases were about it. It wasn't just about that thing exists. It's more, are you representing it as if it is the real thing? Yes. Could it be mistaken for the real thing? If people didn't know any better, it it's how much of income are you really taking away or how much of brand, you know, it's not only a matter of money, it's a matter of goodwill, if you will. Um, if it can't be mistaken for that, even if it uses exactly the same names, then it doesn't really violate copyright or at least arguably it doesn't. And so that's what some of the cool cases have been about is trying to say there's no way that someone could have mistaken, you know, the fact that you're worried about, um, I don't know, a book series about Hellman's and you're saying people will not buy mayonnaise because of your books. Come on, come on, you're being ridiculous. You know what I mean? So yeah,
0: (laughs) and it's funny because we get people get so higher up corporate get so worried in america about all these stomping on copyright but you know how many countries there are where they have bootleg cds you buy on the corner and movies and it's the wrong covers and you know exactly
1: there's whole streets blocks districts in tokyo where that's all it is is uh bootleg you know i mean not only their own stuff obviously it has been that way for a long time and i I don't know, I'm a big believer in intellectual property. I really want the people that did create it or were instrumental in its in its existing at all, they should indeed get uh, just recompense for that. But then the reason that they have copyright law was because they said, okay, it exists and the author should be rewarded. And at first it was like 17, then it was 31. I'm trying to think of the exact numbers of years, but when they tried to make it, okay, that's going to be for like 91 years, right. three okay. generations of people that the deal that you make with society that, okay, now it's in the public domain and other people can make use of your good ideas. The more you kind of break that deal, the more it doesn't acknowledge that society has a vested interest in um, having a good artist community and in participating in that art as well. And the more that you tilt the table towards one or the other, the, the more it's like, well, Sure, you're going to have to copyright for 90 years, but I'm willing to bet that it won't last more than 30 because people are going to stop caring about it if, even in the act of saying it, somebody's handing them a subpoena. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, so, oh you well. can
0: no longer say Heimlich maneuver. They copyrighted it and they enforce it. And it's like, okay, but what are you doing? Really? To do? Did
1: they really? I mean, that's oh that?
0: Yeah, you didn't hear that? You have to call Oh, them. I oh, did Get not this. Hear You'll that. love this, Al.
1: That makes me vomit.
0: You, you <laughs> have to call it an upward thrust. It's like the Rocky Horror Picture yeah.
1: Show. Uh, you know, as as you know, I love words and study of words. And when you find out all the eponymous things that have become like aspirin, wasn't always just an aspirin. It was originally a brand name. Right. And with you name it, Kleenex, Kleenex. Is zero. there's all kinds of things. And those were some of the first cases that were about. It isn't only like that you want to protect your brand name. It's more, aren't you proud that if anybody in the world thinks of something for the headache, they say
0: aspirin. We couldn't get better brand penetration than that. Right. And, you know what I mean? And, so. you know, we're talking about the vampires in New Orleans. Here's here's an example of fan fiction and copyright and everything. So yeah. Bram Stoker wrote Dracula in 1897. Uh, he died in 1912. And during his, I mean, he was already in his 40s before he wrote that. It wasn't like he wrote it at 20 and lived a life of luxury based on this popular hit. Because during right. his lifetime, it was not that popular. I think Uh, I think Dacre said they sold like 2,000 copies of the book, Wow, which is actually quite a few, but you know, not going near what
1: we think of nowadays, where it's millions of copies for the Potter books and stuff. Right.
0: Right. And now Dracula is in the public domain. There are, go look on Amazon, just look up Dracula and count how many books uh, use Dracula. Uh, You know, this, that, how many movies they made, Dracula's daughter, bride, seven brides of Dracula and all that. Right. And It's in the public domain. I can go to Gutenberg and download the full text of Dracula and read Mm -hmm. it for free. But Dacre said, since it was published, it has never gone out of public. So it's still being purchased, still being bought. And I saw uh, an annotated copy of it uh, with an intro by Neil Gaiman. I'm like, oh my God, I'm on vacation. I don't want a big ass book of $80 (laughs) for this, but I'm going to have to look that up, you know, because. You know, th- when you're really into it, that's the type of thing you want to get. Exactly. Like that. So, I, I just, I, I it, it's a win-win. Everybody likes Dracula. It's still super popular because it's good. And that Disney, uh you may have heard about this recently with Disney. When Disney bought Lucasfilm okay. and all of the Star Wars property, they stopped paying the authors for the books they wrote. They still sold the books but they stopped paying the authors, and none of the authors were big enough until Kevin J. Anderson said, wait a second, I'm not getting paid. And yeah. he had the clout to go to court. What,
1: what changed about this, that now you should just say, cut them off. You, you know okay. what they
0: said? They said, well, we bought the property, but we didn't buy the responsibility of the contract.
1: So just that saying that out All loud, right. doesn't it make you like you get to go to hell? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, everyone in the world would say, That is the sneakiest, snakiest thing you could possibly have said. Wow.
0: You know, is Kevin J. Anderson going to want to write another Star Wars book? No. Chuck Wendig wrote some really great Star Wars books in the new canon. uh, And I heard him on an interview with Jay. He said, yeah, I don't want to go do that again. It was kind of miserable to work in that environment. And it's like, hello, you're destroying the property you just paid $4 billion for. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's a great way to put it. It isn't only a matter of them being, if you will, decent people. It is a matter of you You have this asset. Don't you want to retain the value of the asset? Yeah. And part of what you want to do is have every one of those authors could be your goodwill ambassador if you treat them decently. And if not, then they're actually like like everything that goes on with any review on the net. When I don't get my car fixed correctly, it isn't only that you lost my business for the rest of my life. You've lost the 20,000 people that I'm going to be make very well aware of what fucking cheats you are. Right, right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? And I don't know how people don't, especially in this interconnected world, that people just blindly don't seem to care about that. Yeah. And yet, I guess there is some proof that public sentiment is, you know, they got the the attention span of a housefly. They really don't retain from one, one yeah. thing to another. And, and, and
0: I think what's sad for me is whoever is in the boardroom looking at the charts and the spreadsheets it's oh well this book only brought us in a hundred thousand dollars that's not enough money to make it worth it but what they totally miss is that that book then led to a sequel and another sequel and that book uh led to kids buying costumes based on those characters and that book led to uh you know i mean it's 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 more of an there can be things that don't earn as much money but support the things that That's right. I guess that's why I'm not running the corporate boardroom because I'm (laughs) open-minded about it. Or something.
1: (laughs) Well, I I don't know. It's a sad way to close, if you will. But one of the things I always talk about is when that decision gets done, it isn't only that one person said that. There must have been 10 other pairs of eyes, the lawyers, the merchandisers, the marketeers, whatever else it might be. And they all kind of said, yeah, time to screw these people over. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, we, we, what's the great quote from Dune? You know, the, um, the power to destroy something is the power over it. And sometimes that's what people think is they want to not only have it so they can make use of it and make it better, but now they have the control over everybody else that says, if you don't do what I say, I'll just destroy it. I'll take my ball and go home. And that's a sick way to look at the world and an increasingly co-mingled collaborative world. And yet, as if that's new. There's all kinds of people that have always tried to corner the market on a commodity that everybody needs, whether it's gold or trees or insulin or whatever else it might be, that that's how they get power is by scarcity, artificial, sometimes created scarcity and their ability. They just want to want the one that someone has to come to them and ask and they love there's a visceral love of being able to say no, you know, I've seen it. I've seen it in people where they really. I I wish I wasn't making this up where someone like shuddered as if sexually when they made a decision that they knew had a big impact on another person, that weird power thing is, Uh, is really true for some people like, wow, I just, I don't have that. And I think it's kind of sick that really you're not pursuing this to make the world a better place, to make more cool things exist, to make your fair share. Nope. You want to be the decider. And the, not a good decider. You want to like be the, the the monster, the authority monster. Oh well.
0: <laughs> here, here, here's here, the, the, real quick. Two things. One, uh define this. Just kind of sums up the whole world. When I can go buy a sugary pop that is unhealthy for me, and it is cheaper than getting water. <laughs> oh. Okay, if that doesn't explain the world right there. Uh, number two, before we go, my music recommendation of the week. Um, kiefer sutherland has come out with his second album uh it's uh very almost country a little you know uh maybe bob ish. it's just a lot of tunes that you can pick up an acoustic guitar and start strumming and sing uh and he has the first i don't know first song or not but one of the songs i've heard uh called something i love it's just stuck in my head i love the theme of the song uh, the yeah. lyrics it's there's nothing like outrageously cool about the song other than it really is kind of inspirational and uh, an
1: earwormy you know, yeah. in the way that it stayed yes. with you that's cool so exactly. that's my
0: music of the week i've i had it on okay. repeat for a while listening to it because i'm wanting to get all the lyrics down i want to learn how to play them. you know it's yeah. got like three chords it's not a difficult song and
1: yes yeah, so actually thank you I hope you don't mind one yeah. more minute yeah uh, just on the on the net before we started to talk an announcement of robbie steinhardt though he has passed away has a new album out uh called not in kansas anymore you know he was the lead violinist and and uh, co-vocalist for kansas for their for a long time went away came back etc and i i don't have it yet so i can't vouch for its overall quality but of course they have enough teaser little bits of music that it sounds like kansas it's wonderful and overblown and lyrical and pompous and you know the and the violin as a lead instrument can be very emotional and evocative and i just if this is what he was working on before he passed it it sure looks like like not only are kansas ba- uh, albums still great the absence of presence is great et cetera, prelude and implicit but steve walsh's solo albums especially one called glossolalia is one of the, my I, I return to that album when I don't know what else I want to listen to again and again because it's so good in terms of it sounds Kansas y enough, but it's different enough that I get a new experience. And having said that, Colleen and I were um, starting to come out into the world again. We've been very careful about comedy clubs and concerts and stuff like that, about making sure we were fully vaccinated and what the place is like. The People's Bank Theater down in Marietta, Ohio, has Kansas coming up the weekend before Thanksgiving, and I They've always done a great show. And the live albums that they put out when they were doing like the complete left overture and the complete and overturn no return sound fantastic. And so I want to go see them. And we just, the tickets weren't inexpensive. And yet that's going to be like, okay, let's go down there for Thanksgiving. We'll do a little bit of Christmas shopping and it'll be crisp fall air. And we'll go to the Glass Museum and whatever else is in Cool Marietta, Ohio. But the overall thing is, I just can't wait to hear Kansas live again. They really i love them i really love them they hearing the wall live just it is inspirational and transporting in the way that you just talked about something to love so i i love that experience man that's another flow activity i go to a concert and i just float through play my air keyboards (laughs) (laughs) you know sing with every song okay all right man always a pleasure steven take care
0: take care i'm glad you're
1: all this It was great okay
0: You have been listening to the Relentless Geekery Podcast. Come back next week and join Alan and Stephen's conversation on Geek Topics of the Week.